0: the song uh, is a genius song uh, because that song is literally, and I mean literally, about absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> a couple of lines from the song that Paul was just singing, because I know it's kind of hard to hear. And, and so uh, he says the, 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 the verse that begins with, It doesn't matter what I say as long as I say it with inflection. That makes you feel like I'll convey some inner truth or vast reflection But I've said nothing so far, and I can keep it up as long as it takes. And for the next three minutes, he does. And it's just a genius song because of that. And we wanted to start that off um, because I came under some heavy conviction this week from the Scriptures. And I wanted to preach a little bit uh, before we get into our singing time. Because I think that sometimes when we come in uh, to worship, to sing praises to our God, we treat it much like this song, Hook. Like all we're doing is singing words. We like the tune, so we sing along with it. We know the words. Maybe if you grew up with maybe one of the hymns that we're going to sing today, and you just kind of know it. We just go into it, but that is not the case. That is not what we are here to do today. In fact, there's this interesting thing that happens in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and if you've been with us for the past 28 weeks now, you've gotten your fill, I'm sure, of Deuteronomy. But what happens in Deuteronomy 31 is that God foresees a time when his people will abandon his ways. They'll they'll stop following, they'll stop listening, they'll stop doing all of the things that he has commanded for them to do. And when that day comes, the judgment of God will fall upon the people, and the people will cry out for his deliverance they will need to cry out for his deliverance but it is possible that we spend so much time wandering away from God that we forget how to cry out we forget what we're supposed to do and so God says to Moses I want you to write a song in fact as far as I know some of you can maybe fact check me but as far as I can remember in all my studies of scripture this is the only time where God says directly I have a song and I want you to write it down We read in Deuteronomy 31, verse 19, this. Now therefore God is speaking to Moses. Write this song and teach it to this people. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them back into the land, flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they've eaten their fill and grown fat. They will turn to other gods and they will despise me and break my covenant. And when those many evils and troubles come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness for it will live unforgotten on the mouths of their children. God is then, as he, as he begins to write this song, reminding Moses or telling Moses for the first time that this Song that I'm writing is going to stand as a testimony, a witness against the people. It will call the people guilty. I've been struck recently... As I've been, uh, for, for some of the projects that I'm, I'm into, I've been reading through the Bible from cover to cover with an eye to what are the practices, what are the things that God tells the people of God to do. And one of the things that has struck me as I've been doing this work is how often the scriptures talk about our words and our words condemning us. So here are four examples First, there is this example that comes from the the Ten Commandments. You might be familiar with the Ten Commandments, hopefully. Uh, In the Ten Commandments, God says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for God will not hold the person guiltless who does it. You use God's name in vain. God remembers it, and he will hold it against you on the day of judgment. We see Jesus say, I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give an account for every careless word they speak, which really convicts me because I say a lot of words intentionally, right? How many times have you said a word meaning to strike someone? And here Jesus says, the careless words that come out of your mouth, those careless words will condemn you. Which is why the psalmist then says, crying out to God, God set a guard over my my mouth. Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. And James warns us later on in Scripture that if anyone uh, thinks he or she is religious, that is, you think you're a Christian, you think you're okay, you say to yourself, well, I'm a good person, it's going to be all right, and yet does not bridle the tongue, but deceives your heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's that's heavy stuff to start a a Sunday off with, but it's vital Because it is entirely possible that on the day of judgment, when you stand before God, God might say, well, I see that you went to church, and I I see that you you, uh, even said you were a Christian. You might have even invited people to church with you. You might have even baptized people at church camp. You might have volunteered every Sunday. But man, your tongue just went wild. Depart from me. Depart from me. And when we bring this into the realm of singing, it becomes even more important because what we are about to do as the band, when they come up and they begin to lead us, what they are about to do is they are about to lead us in one of the things that God has called us to do, and that is to offer sacrifices of praise. It says this in Hebrews 13, 15, through him, that is through Christ, then let us offer up continually a sacrifice of praise to God The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Which means then that when we begin to sing songs, we should come to those words of praise that you are about to engage in with the same type of gravitas that you would an animal brought forward, slain, laid on the altar, and sent up as burning incense. You can imagine how serious the people would have taken bringing the animal to the priest, the priest laying their hands on, the priest blessing it, the priest, priest slaying the animal, and the animal being chopped up and, and offered as a burnt offering. That's a, a serious moment. Now, I don't mean by serious somber. I'm not looking to turn this next few minutes into a funeral uh, procession. Right? You don't need to be dead, sitting in your seats, weeping tears, unless you need to be doing that. But, What I am saying is that frequently we don't come to this time of praise with this kind of seriousness. That like what you are about to do is to to take up a pledge to God. You are about to sing words to God that God will then hold you accountable to. So we're going to sing some words. We're going to sing words like, Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. The streams of abundance flow. Blessed, blessed praise Glory to the name of God. And we're about to sing, blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Do you mean that? Because God will hold you to this. Will you praise his name in the times that are good? Will you praise his name in the times that are not? Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I am still in your hands, and this is my confidence. You have never failed me yet. Therefore, we sing words like, All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence daily live. Do you mean these words? Because it is no small thing to let them flow from your lips. It is a sacrifice of praise that needs to be entered into with joy, with triumph, but with sincerity. One of the practices of the Christian church is that we are sincere in the things that we say. We don't double speak, talk out of one side and out of another, but rather out of sincerity we declare praises unto God. And we are, as the band comes forward now, we are about to enter into a time of praise, a sacrifice to God, the praise of our lips. And what we want today is for you to take that with the utmost seriousness. We want you to mean every single word that comes out of your mouth, every single word to come from the very bottom of your toes, the very top of your head, that this is all of us declaring to God all that he owes. Let's do this as we enter our time of singing now. And yes, we invite you to stand as you uh, feel comfortable as we begin to do just that. All right, well, we already sort of kicked off the sermon a little bit, but I wanted to dive in deeper into the content of Moses' song. So if you would turn in your scriptures to Deuteronomy 32, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right, or you don't have it downloaded on your phone, don't worry about it. Grab one of the pew Bibles just like uh, you've got in front of you. I will be on page 173. It's the bottom, uh, bottom second column, the big 3-2. This is such an interesting passage to me, not just because of... uh, And it's because it's a place where God commands Moses. The God of all the universe says, hey, write this song. I mean, it's just kind of an interesting notion. A lot to think about. I talked a little bit About that in my most recent podcast. So if you go to peaceandstrongcoffee dot com, you can hear some more thoughts about the power of music and what it does to us and for us and all of that. But uh, one of the things that's interesting about this text is that it is the same thing that we have heard over and over and over and over and over and over and over. I'm not going to do it 28 times, but over again. Uh, It is a story, in essence. It is a retelling through music of the story of Israel. And it goes something like this. And again, you've heard this story, but God is good. He is beautiful. He is true. And he is faithful to his covenant. And yet his people so frequently are not faithful to his covenant. And they abandon the covenant of God. And they refuse to walk in his ways. And they become faithless. God is faithful, but they are faithless. And by faithless, I don't mean that they don't think that there's a God. They don't think that God, like, it's not like about a belief, as it were, as much as it is that those beliefs don't echo into their lives. And what they end up living like is the pagans around them, the people who don't know God's ways. And so God does something that God always does. When we refuse to follow him, he steps back and he lets us go. If you don't want to follow God and you want to wallow in sin, God will let you do that. If you want to become as depraved as you can, God will let you do that. But the problem is, is when you wallow in the mud, what happens? You get dirty. And other people come around you. And one of the things that we learn in our house all the time, we were watching cartoons yesterday and it came true again, bad guys don't what? Trust bad guys. You surround yourself with bad guys... You can't trust them, right? Because they will betray. Because sin begets, sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. You can't walk in sin and say, "Well, I'm sure that they'll be fair with me." Right? That's not how it works. Sin begets sin, and that's what happens when God's people say, "You know, we don't want anything to do with you." God says, "Fine, go for it." And what happens? Their enemies surround them. They compound their sin, and they end up in this terrible state of oppression. That they've caused and that is caused by those around them. It's just sin all over. And what's amazing about the scriptures and amazing about God is that when people find themselves in that state, when you find yourself in the place where you say, Man, what has become of my life? What have I done with all of this? Surely there is a better way. God hears your cries and God forgives your sin. Isn't that good? Because as I tell the story of Israel, that's not unlike my story. <laughs> is it unlike yours? Oh, over, and over 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 again. I especially find it at the table. This has been, and maybe this is sort of unique. I don't know if that's unique to our churches or not, but when I come to the table, the first thing that comes to my mind is how unworthy I am of the sacrifice of Jesus. And I begin to consider how over the week that has passed, I have not lived up to the calling to which I've been called, the grace which I have been given. And I spend a bit of time repenting and thinking, man, God, forgive my sins. In fact, there's a a verse that I learned, I think maybe every year, and I was, was, uh, my parents were pretty devout, and so we ended up at church camp all, every year. I recommend you do the same to your kids, like it or not, church camp or VBS. But we learned this verse, I don't know how many times. Anybody ever have to memorize this? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That no matter how far you have wandered, God still has a home that you are welcomed into if we confess our sins. And Israel is going to wander off, and they're going to go their own way. (coughs) But God wants them to remember how to return. And so the tune, the song, the hook, as it were from earlier, the hook brings them back. And they remember, and they cry out to God. And, And as the enemies of Israel are sort of trouncing them completely... The enemies begin to cry out and say, well, look at how good we are. We've defeated Israel, man. We're awesome. Our gods are better than theirs. We're better than they are. All of that. And God says, no, it won't be. I will vindicate my name. And so he goes in and he rescues his people. And that's a gorgeous story. It is a story I find not only as I look across the great Thousands of years of church history, as not only as I, if you were to sort of continue on past Deuteronomy, you're going to Joshua and Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel. For, as you, if you read through the rest of, of your Bibles, what you would see is over and over again, there's that same story. God is faithful. God is always faithful, and his people kind of constantly mess up, and yet God reaches out to them and rescues them. And yet there is an error that we can make because we can begin to think that the reason that God reaches out and rescues is that the content or the meaning, meaning or the purpose of this song is because you are so great. How can God not love you, right? That is not the purpose of this song. The song is about the glory of God. And that's what this is all about. It's about God. It's not about us. And I want you to notice that as we look deeply into this text today. Notice verse 1. We begin with the beauty of God. The beauty of God. Moses begins to sing. I wonder how good a voice he had. I just—it's all raspy and cold and terrible, like mine, or a, the, the 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 siren song of Paul. I don't know, but Moses anyway sings. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. May my speech distill as the dew like a gentle rain upon tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Isn't that beautiful? We, since we don't, most of us don't tend the ground beyond maybe a little garden patch behind you, it doesn't have quite as much richness and meaning. But, but this is good words for an agricultural community to have rain drop and have dew come forward, to be just rich and verdant and beautiful like our God. Ascribing greatness to Him. For in verse 4, He is a rock, the rock. His work is perfect, for all of His ways are justice. God is faithful and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. God is called a rock. If you remember the story, the Israelites spent a great deal of time at the Mount of Sinai and they're gazing upon a big rock, a mount. And as they think about God, He, they sometimes attribute, because again, we, God is a mystery to us. And so we have to attribute a the superlatives we can come up with. What is the greatest word you can think of? Now take that and amp that a million times and you've got something close to what God is. And so we're constantly trying to throw superlatives. He's great. He's excellent. He's majestic. He's, he's a rock. Because if you've ever stood at the base of a mountain and you look up, you realize how small you are, right? Man, that's big. You know, so many times in the mountains, we would, as we were in Tennessee and kind of hanging out down there, and then I've been down there a couple of times uh, recently, and uh, I, you know, every time I'm crossing, I think, man, I am just this like ant walking around on these great big things, and yet they're beautiful. There are these places where you can get up the top, and you can just see ranges, and you just think, man, it's just Gorgeous, and words don't really work. Like, I have to show you a 4K picture of it to kind of get at it, but even that doesn't come at the glory of seeing it. God is a rock. He 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 is big and powerful, and we are small, and yet when you're on top of a rock, it also provides this ability to be safe. The floods can't reach you. The enemy can't reach you. You're in a safe place. God is a rock. He is a safe place. All of these things flow. As we consider this idea of God, he is beautiful. In verse 11, it says, Like an eagle that stirs its nest, that flutters over its, over its young, spreading out its wings and catching its young and, and bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone has guided us. No foreign God, but the Lord alone grabs a hold of you and like an eagle, he flies forward and he guides his children like you and I, if we follow God, are these baby eagles flying out of these trees and the Lord is the one who is guiding us in his good way. There's nothing mightier, more resplendent, which is a great word, resplendent. Say that, resplendent. God is resplendent in glory. And every piece of the beautiful world that he has made is but a pale reflection of that glory. God is beautiful in all his ways. And this song bears out the beauty of God. It bears out his ability to to raise us up and to guide us in the right way and to give us richness and glory. In verse 13, look at verse 13. He made him, that's talking about Israel, just kind of in a first person. <clears throat> Excuse me. He made him ride on the high places of the land. We ate the produce of the field, suckled him upon the honey of the rock, oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat lambs, the rams of Bashan, goats with the very finest of wheat. You drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. And run, which is just another way of saying Israel, grew fat. Now, I know that some of these kind of sound weird to you because you probably did most of your shopping at Costco. Can I get a... Yeah. Co- there it is. I knew Kelly would get that. What's the other place? I forget. Trader Joe's, that's it. I've never been there. But Kelly is the Trader Joe champion. <laughs> We do our shopping elsewhere, and so these things don't necessarily, uh, uh, we we don't recognize them as their uh, their beauty, especially curds from the herd, which is just my favorite expression, and I'm going to use it liberally for the rest of this sermon. Because I don't know what that means exactly, other than I think cheese, but it sounds about as nasty as anything. Aside from maybe foaming wine, I don't know what foaming wine is either, maybe you should explain it to me those of you who are wine people but i just the blood of the grape you couldn't describe wine in a more gross way to me enjoy that blood of the grape oh thank you eat those curds from but anyway this is richness right it's a description of the beauty of god just pouring out his abundance on his people it's like look at what god has done for you look at how much he loves you look at that all that he has provided for you i mean look at your life I know there are bad times. I know there are hard times. But look at all that God has done for you. Can you say, can you say honestly, God has done nothing but curse me? You see the beauty, the richness that God has provided in the world around us and to you. And yet we have this kind of double insult here. You notice this. Verse 15. But Jeshurun, which I said again is just a way of saying Israel, grew fat and kicked. Because that's what... Fat people do, I guess. You grew fat and stout and sleek. Then he forsook God, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. There's kind of a double meaning here. You grew fat, which in general... so we, we had this, uh, We had this friend from Africa when we were in Bible college, Peter Chege. And I can tell you lots of stories about Peter. He was an interesting cat. Uh, but one of the things about Peter that I found so interesting is that when we would eat in the, the cafeteria together, man, he would just pack it away. I mean, like, just pack it away. And I don't remember what, the convers- what brought the conversation up, but eventually he told us he was trying to get fat. Like, he was trying to put on weight because he was about to go home to his wife, and he wanted to put on at least 15 pounds for when he went back to Africa. And I thought, like, everybody, what is going on? I thought to myself, and now I'm convinced I'm in the wrong continent altogether because packing out 15 pounds is what makes you beautiful. I'm there, baby. Curds from the herd all day long. All day long. I mean, to say you are, you've grown fat in scriptures to say that you have eaten from the abundance, like God has given you so much that you have excess, so much excess that you have excess pounds. And yet at the same time, there's a kind of an insult here as well, isn't there? Fat. And stout and sleek, like a pig. Right? Kicking, kicking back at God. That God is the one who's given you all of this, and what have you returned it with? You've returned it with a rejection of Him. My impression is that over the years of ministry and uh, being a part of church, I. I've seen both aspects of things. I've seen people who have kind of had really um, good years get well off. Things got busy. They got a summer house somewhere. They got a boat somewhere. They got, you know, a vacation home or something. And these kind of drop off more and more and more. But I've also seen where people go through hard times and the doubt just kind of pulls them away from God. But I am convinced, I was sharing this with the guys uh, yesterday morning, I am convinced the most dangerous place to be is the middle class because we have just we have just not enough to be greedy and know we want more and we have uh, just enough not to be desperate for god and so we live in this broad realm of complacency could it be said of you and i don't mean this is this to take this within the context this is going to go up on the internet it's going to go badly but Could it be said of you that you have grown fat and stout and sleek and kicked against God? All of his blessings he's poured out on you. And what have you done with them? What has become of the songs that we sang? I surrender all, great is your faithfulness. These great words. And it brings me back again to that verse, man. That verse that we said from, oh, it's still up. There it is. From 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. That God is faithful. He's continually faithful. He's constantly faithful. He's over and over and over and over and over again faithful. And is there someone here today that needs to remember how faithful God has been to you? And you need to remember it in such a way that you repent of turning your back to him and begin to walk forward and toward him because God is true. I love the psalm, Psalm 27, which says, My mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord has taken me. And I love Hebrews, which says, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am calling out to my people. If you would, but hear my voice, recognize my faithfulness, and come to me, I would turn and forgive your sins. And welcome you into my presence. Because there is this wonderful middle ground that you live in right now where you have this moment to turn your life to God. And we have this message that beyond this moment, you don't have it. You might you might not. But that there is coming a day of victory. God has this in the story as, as, we, as we look at uh, verse 40. As the song continues on, it kind of meets this crescendo here. Where God says, for I will lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword shall devour flesh and the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Gentlemen, get a haircut. Rejoice. With him, O heavens, bow down before him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. If we haven't been intense already today, this is intense words. This is an important thing too. This is actually where Paul is hearkening to. If you remember Paul back and forward a few a thousand years into Romans 12, Paul harkens back to this passage and says, This is why Christians don't ever take vengeance because we leave room for the vengeance of God. That God is a God who is a God of victory. That he will vindicate his people. He will vindicate his name. His name will be praised. And like I said earlier, one of the dangers when we come to this, when we come to passages even like this, which are beautiful and glorious, in our everyone-gets-a-trophy society, we can get lost and think that the reason that there is so much love and forgiveness and faithfulness is because you're just so worth it. You're so wonderful. Who couldn't love you and give you a trophy? And yet this is not the case at all. The case is that God's glory must come first. And we have the privilege, if we come to him through repentance, and we draw near to him, and we become a part of his people, we get a share, we get a place in that victory. But the victory isn't about me, and it's not about you, it's about God. And when we realize and recognize the beauty, the glory, the truth, the resplendence of God, we can finally get a glimpse that, man, Nothing else matters. And we can sing songs like great is your faithfulness. We can sing songs like blessed is your name when things are abundant and when things are lean. Blessed is your name regardless of my situation. We can sing songs like all to Jesus I surrender because what is anything that is passing away here? The point is God God's glory, God's beauty, God's resplendence, it is about him. One of the things I fear when we say things like God is love, I think we mean God loves me because I'm so lovable. We don't recognize that the reason, what we mean by God is love is that God is this eternally faithful being. This being who continually pours out grace even upon unrighteous people. And so there's this message from the scriptures, this message from Deuteronomy all the way to Hebrews, which is what we're going to be preaching about in the next couple of weeks. All the way from beginning to end, this great arc of God's faithfulness and glory and his echoing message to all nations that if you would repent and turn to God, he would heal you. He would give you victory. He would bring you close. There's this story, this story that's really powerful. Um... And it really matters. It's a story that you're familiar with. Israel is at the gates, as it were, of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh, with all of his armies, is bearing down upon him. And all of the people are crying out. They're looking at these iron chariots full of weapons of war and, and, and hardened warriors. And here they are, slaves and, and whatever they've been able to drag away from Egypt. And here they are at this, at this ocean uh, shore they're about to be driven into the ocean or run over by those chariots and they cry out to God and Moses cries out to God on their behalf and God says why are you crying out why are you crying out like are you you expecting me not to save you he says in exodus 14:14 14, 14, the lord will fight for you you have only to be silent that's that's something because you're all fighting a battle of some kind. We all brought a battle in here today. And you're going to go out and you're going to face that battle. And I'd encourage you to turn to that text this week and maybe make it a, I don't know, life verse or something you used to call it. But a verse that you would remember this week. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And by silent, I think it means here in this context to be patient and allow God to do his work. God knows what you need, Jesus says, before you ask it. There are no surprises to Jesus. He knows what you need before you ask it. So, what does this mean in the context of of who we are as Christians or who we are to be as the people of God? I think it means something very specific. I think it gives us a worldview as we're leaving Deuteronomy. We've been talking worldview, identity, and practices. I think it means that as we leave Deuteronomy, what I want you to see from beginning to end of the Scriptures is this worldview that Christians have, that believers in God have, that other people don't, and that is that it all belongs to God. We used to sing this song. Maybe this is similar to uh, the kind of thing that Moses was doing, but he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. You only have to be silent and let God fight for you. What a powerful place. What a powerful thing. And you, we recognize this identity that we are his children. Why? Because what have we done? We have confessed our sins. We have been washed in the waters of regeneration. We have been brought into his people. And we are not perfect people. Can I get a witness? We know that we're broken. We know that we're messed up. We know that there's a long way to go. We know that there's a lot of growth that has to happen, but we've confessed our sins. And God's faithfulness, praise God, overwhelms our sin with the blood of Jesus, and we can walk in a newness of life. And so our perspective changes. We recognize the world is God's, and so we have this sense in which we are then God's children, not as servants, not just as slaves, but also the ones who will dwell with him in his house, having a room in the very house of God, and so what do Christians get to do? What do we get to be? We get to be the people who are relaxed. Everyone else is freaking out. Why are we freaking out? You serve God. You're his child. The Lord will fight for you. Be silent and let these great deep virtues of scripture, the spirit of the living God who is in you, who has washed you and entered you as you entered in the waters of baptism, give you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If we were this, wouldn't we be something to be marveled at? How many people that you work with have this as the central characteristics of who they are, but you do, you do. Because the Lord who made the heavens and the earth is not just your God, but he is also your Father. As we come to a conclusion this morning, we invite you to come forward. If you need to do just this, confessing your sins, praying over you. If you've never become a Christian and you need to be baptized, let us know that we want to walk with you. We are all in this journey together. We're all in this together. Our elders will be down front and they want to pray with you. They want to meet with you. They want to walk with you. Let's stand as we sing this hymn of praise.